So today I have the unique privilege of sitting down with Major Sonia Vargo, who is a trauma critical care nurse and an instructor at the Army Trauma Training Center, as well as Colonel Mark Buzelli, who is a trauma surgeon and the program's director. They both give great detail as to why it's so critical that our medical professionals complete this training just prior to being deployed. And they both give great insight into their own deployments and experience, which include as recently as Colonel Buzelli's, which took place this past August in Afghanistan during that heart-wrenching troop withdrawal. On a side note, the views expressed are those of the author and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. Army, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. So, let's do it. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight I see you broken and beaten Head pulled out over your eyes Every part of you wants to surrender Darling, you were meant to survive With every sound Alrighty, so thanks for coming on uh, today, Colonel and Major. I uh, definitely appreciate it. I am so stoked and excited to hear all about um, the Army Trauma Training Center and also, you know, your backgrounds as well. Um, if you guys don't mind just basically taking the floor and just giving, uh, giving us some insight into like what you guys do specifically and then also what the uh, trauma center is designed around serving. Need to start? Yeah, go ahead, yeah, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, hello. Yeah, Daniel, we we're so glad to be here and uh, thankful for the opportunity. Uh, my name is Colonel Mark Bazelli. I am a uh, trauma surgeon. Uh, an active duty uh, member of the uh, U.S. Army and uh, currently the director of the Army Trauma Training Center, uh, which uh, many folks might not know, but it's uh, been located here at uh, the University of Miami School of Medicine and the Ryder Trauma Center for 20 years now. I, I did read that. I, I read that it's 20 years, I believe, this, um, this past year, and it started September 10th, 2001. Correct. That is. I thought that was like the oddest timing for that, by the way. Yeah. So there, there was some uh, history to uh, having these uh, military civilian partnerships at trauma centers uh, that predates our existence here at Miami. But uh, the uh, agreement with the University of Miami and Ryder Trauma Center was apparently a, the uh, original agreement was signed on September 10th, 2001. Uh, the uh, uh, significance of the training center became uh, uh, much greater, of course, the very next day when uh, we actively engaged in the global war on terrorism and have since for the past 20 years. Uh, but the, uh, uh, I believe the actual first attendees uh, were this month, were January of uh, 2002. So we are truly at the 20-year anniversary mark of its uh, first, first class. class. Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah, There's probably a lot of changes since then because you guys were basically setting up pre-war almost. Right. That was the intention. And then all of a sudden the next day, correct. Things kind of changed the entire itinerary. Right. Yeah. I mean, we one of the mantras, I think, within the military is you train to fight. And we just so happened, like he said, it just got signed and all of a sudden it became real. 
um, and became a real big deal. And it still has been, as we, as you see in the news, right, that um, we're all over the world uh, constantly needing that military support, but also that medical support um, as well. Yeah, I feel like people don't um, really realize that. They just see the the guns and the people breaking in the doors and so, but... Oh, 100%. Even um, most recently, you know, after the Afghanistan war piece, right, that was on the news, uh, we have some of our counterparts that we work with um, that even said, why is the Army still training here at Ryder Trauma Center? The Afghan war is over. And... Um, and a lot of them are younger individuals, right, like that are probably med students or nursing students, right, um, not fully understanding that we have a presence all around the world and that doesn't stop training. You continue to train uh, just because, right, like we're not in an active engagement maybe to some people. But obviously, we can't disclose everywhere that we are, but um, that medical training, it's like riding a bike if you don't practice it, right? Um, you're going to get a little weak on your skills, um, and that's what we do is make sure that the best of the best are training, um, and that's why our men and women fight is because they know we've got the best medical training and that's what we provide and to bring them home safely. Yeah, because um, from a little bit of my research, you guys kind of specialize in training those just about to deploy? Correct. So while the original idea, again, pre-September 11th was just kind of more of a maintenance training, it was kind of born out of the uh, experience of the Gulf War of the early 90s that... Uh, uh, we fortunately, because that war was so brief, didn't really have many casualties, but there was, uh, at least amongst some of the uh, medical leaders of that time, uh, some acknowledgement that maybe we weren't quite as ready on the medical side uh, to deal with major traumas. Uh, and so this idea of embedding military teams at civilian, very busy civilian trauma centers uh, came to life. And that's eventually by the time they got around to uh, partnering with the University of Miami. Uh, but the thought is, if you're not continuously practicing as really a you know, trauma team, uh, you're not going to be as prepared as you maybe need to be. Uh, so the, uh, the, the notion was there from, from the start that you got to, like we've said, train like you fight and uh, be prepared to take care of uh, military-style casualties, which not too many trauma centers see on a regular day basis. Yeah, for, for sure, because um, those, those that you're training to, are they the ones that um, are on the ground too and doing, you know, in combat style life-saving skills, or are they the ones where, you know, the medevac brings them back to, um, so they can, you know, perform surgeries. And so there, are they in the field during that or a combination? That's actually a really great question. Um, one, we do train active duty and reserve folks. And we also have some people from our special forces, like uh, special operations, I should say, that community also comes and trains with us um, just to, again, brush up on their skills. But it's both. We've got FSTs, which are forward surgical teams and forward resuscitative teams, right? Um, they jump out of airplanes, you know, with their equipment. Um, and they're able to set up within a 12-hour time frame. Uh, usually they're able to take patients within an hour or two of tailgate medicine. Um, and then they have surgical capability. And I think that's what makes us so special because um, there's really not a lot of that capability around the world is that we can really participate actively with the warfighter that's moving forward. We can move forward with them and then keep them within that golden hour that you've probably heard of, you know, um, yeah. life, limb, eyesight. Um, and sometimes you have to jump out of airplanes. Sometimes you got to be brought in, you know, to buy like a C-130. Sometimes yeah. it's got to be um, by ground and you have maybe a fixed facility. Um, and sometimes they're doing it surgeries like surgeries out of a blown out building you know when you think about what we can do it's quite amazing yeah i feel like you guys are the um the difference between 
why we're not, you know, in the Civil War era, just, all right, you got shot in the arm, cut it off type of thing to where it's really just because of you guys that were now able to do like real surgeries in the field. And I mean, not only saving limbs and so, but I mean, there's a, a lot that you just completely, those people are not coming back if they can't get that high level of care that there's probably only a certain amount of countries that can really do in their military, you know? Yeah, um, and I'm sure Dr. Bazzelli could probably, you know, um, attest to this too, but the Army and our FST, like, training and support that we do, a lot of these other countries, our NATO and our, you know, UN forces and everybody that we work with, they really model a lot of things after us as well. And so it's important for us to stay relevant, right? And I yeah. think one of the benefits of being in a trauma center with a civilian partnership, right, um, is that it allows us to have a foot in both worlds, right? Staying clinically, I think, relevant also within the research, right? Evidence-based practice, not only on the civilian side, but bringing that to the military and vice versa. There's a lot of sharing, a lot of data, a lot of research. Um, and again, when I first came into the military, I was very shocked um, at how much was actually shared and how much the civilian trauma centers modeled after us. Um, whole blood um, administration is kind of an example of that or how we apply tourniquets. Um, it's, it's, it's quite fascinating, actually, uh, that we get to, to operate in both worlds. Oh, for sure, for sure. And, and when they go through the, um, the trauma training center, are there specific um, deployment locations that they automatically go to? Or is it just, I mean, an open book, they're going wherever in the world? Or do you guys have set, um, you know, rotations? Yeah, so the um, teams are typically coming to us in a pre-deployment fashion, as, as you were talking, right? That the, basically the events of September 11th kicked off a, a series of, of, of um, subsequent events that basically everything we have done has really been in more of a deployment type of training, whereas that wasn't its initial vision. Um, but the uh, uh, locations that the teams go to, uh, well, there are some variability. I mean, it's essentially where we've been at war for the past 20 years, right? Teams were going yeah. to various places in Afghanistan, various places in Iraq, uh, and occasionally some places um, in the rest of the world, typically uh, in some locations in Africa. Okay. Okay. I, I was I was going to ask you on that, too, because, um, you know, Afghanistan being just recently kind of blown up with, um, you know, some news there and actually having some casualties, not only of our own, but then many afghans as well um how do your teams respond in in like say that type of environment where it's just it's chaos but then you know obviously you have to have medical staff in there as well just to to be able to get them out and i'm sure maybe some of them have um were able to pr provide support in that scenario too um is that something that is obviously you guys train for, um, but in that element with just so much rapid chaos and change, were there also some like medical personnel there or was it just um, like 11 Bravos and infantry and, and things of that nature? But at the end, uh, at the end of Afghanistan, just yeah, a few months yeah, ago? During, during the pullout, because you, just thinking of like, um, thinking of how everything comes out, like we're probably infantry, we're probably the last ones out there. When, ideally, when do, um, you know, the medical staff kind of start packing their things up and, and leaving out of there? I mean, if, if that's something that's like a, a topic. He's um, got a great story for you. He was there 
Um, he was probably one of the last <laughs> ones running on the plane to get out of there, saving a oh, life, shit. saving lives till the very last second. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like talking out of my ass. You're just no. like, all right, how do no. I wear this? Uh. It's like funny you bring that up. Yeah, interesting, oh, interesting you mentioned that. Yeah, I was, I was well, in. I wonder my... why you just got back from vacation. Man. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a 2021 is different. It, uh, wow. Yeah. So despite my position here at the training center, uh, we are still deployable. Uh, when the army calls upon us to do so. And so I was uh, uh, in Afghanistan this past summer and uh, didn't- During, de- during the pullout. During the pullout. Did not depart until 30 August. So I was there on the last day, left maybe about 12 hours before some of those uh, last troops did. And so medical is there until almost the bitter end. Um, whereas at the, at the very end, it's it's we, we have to then be evacuated prior to the very last troops going. And did they- um... That's crazy. Um, first of all, did they send you out there specifically because it started to get, all right, here's some chaos going on. We need the best of the best. Colonel, we need you out there. Or were you already kind of out there just in case? Well, I, I had a uh, deployment that had been scheduled. It was kind of my turn to go. And so I was there with a forward surgical team, the 936th forward surgical team, which is a, uh, a reserve team, actually, that uh, a lot of times – in medical, they'll cross over and they sometimes yeah, yeah, use yeah. active duty docs on reserve teams. Um, but uh, I was there with them uh, from earlier in the year. Uh, got there a few months before everything really went sideways. Um, yeah, the um, question you asked, though, is additional resources were brought in uh, to uh, expand our medical capability. So as the uh, combat troops, you know, with the addition of the Marines and the 82nd Airborne Division, kind of fighting soldiers uh, increased. They also increased uh, some of the medical that was there to support them. And so we had even uh, an another another colleague, an orthopedic surgeon who works with us, uh, that was brought in on a separate forward surgical team that joined us for about 10 days. Oh, wow, wow. And what's, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was going to say what's crazy about that is the teams that they deployed with recently trained with us in the States here in Miami. And so talk about, right, like full circle um, instructor cadre is now part of their team. And that's something that we really stress is that, right, your paths can cross again at any time. And here, just because he's the director, right, doesn't mean that he's not able to deploy and still has that bedside uh, skill, still able to use his skills as a trauma surgeon, um, not just instruct, but he could walk the walk and talk the talk, which I think is very unique. Yeah. yeah, for sure, for sure. Because basically, I mean, you're you're going back to training trainees, you know, saying, I just use these skills that I've been trying to train you guys, and that this is the reason why we take things serious and why, you know, we, we do the things we do, which is, um, you know, kind of like, I almost feel like, is that like Michael Jordan coming out of retirement? Back to the back to the Wizards trying to... <laughs> Those skills don't perish, man. I'll, I'll say this. the uh, I, I feel very fortunate that I uh, have had the experience that I've had the last several years at the Ryder Trauma Center. It is such a you know, busy place, uh, but really a wonderful place in terms of the uh, intensity of the trauma care that goes on there that uh, I, I truly felt prepared to take care of the uh, uh, people that we were dealing with overseas, particularly the, the Marines that were uh, uh, really severely injured during the uh, suicide bombing attack. Yeah, and I, I mean, I also read too, because obviously, you know, it, it hits the news, um, I think it was 13 that ended up- 13 um, that were killed, yes. Th- that were killed, but, you know, I read a little deeper into that too, and I, I think I saw 
90 in total, like civilians and, and, and everybody killed over there. And that's something too that I think, you know, kind of goes unnoticed to where, you know, maybe, uh, you, you know, you can um, lighten on this a little bit more too, but like, if you have five surgeons, you know, if that amount of people are coming in, even say just the Marines, 13 come in for you guys to service. I mean, if, if you don't have the, the staff or the capabilities or the, the technology or the teams on there too, I mean, you guys are almost overwhelmed in and of itself because you're not just talking. You can all operate on one or two people. You know, all of a sudden you have five or six or seven people come in. I mean, what, how, how do you handle some of those overwhelming scenarios, I guess? Uh, the, uh, I guess key is to, to have lived it right to train it day to day. Like, and that's, that's, I think one of the highlights of our, our training program. If, um, if you kind of, if you try to rehearse medical scenarios in a notional way, uh, they're very abbreviated. Uh, they're not nearly as intense. Uh, they're not as authentic. Yes. Yeah. And so it's really essential to take care of real patients, uh, and that's why I think our, our training program is, is so valuable and so successful because it, uh, it is some of the um, maybe few occasions that some of these forward surgical teams are going to work together as a complete team taking care of truly injured uh, people. It's not mannequins. It's not anything notional about it. It's uh, uh, the intensity is real, but the time is real. And the, that, that's, I think, maybe the point you're getting at is just how time-consuming some severely injured patients are uh, in terms of the medical care that we can render, uh, it's possible, but it's it's very time consuming. It's very labor and uh, uh, resource intensive, and so uh, you do to say the least. Uh, resource intensive—that's a perfect way to put it. But that's uh, I mean. And so you do find that there are limits, and so when you have uh, a really large casualty event like we had on 26 August, um, you know we were kind of at our at our breaking point in terms of number of patients we could. Uh, uh, take care of simultaneously, but you you triage appropriately, and again, that's another uh, important thing that we we train and teach is is uh, making good triage decisions so that you take care of folks that are salvageable, um, and then to you uh, you then just keep working and working. We worked for about 18 hours straight that day, kind of nonstop with multiple ORs going and people getting you know blood and resuscitation and care uh, over a pretty uh, intense period of time. But I think. Um, when you said the, uh, some of the casualty numbers, I think we treated 60 or 70 additional patients, uh, that did survive, um, some being other, uh, U S service members, some being Afghan civilians that were caught up in the, uh, in the incident. Um, and the, uh, uh, uh I think, uh, the, the results were, you know, uh, in some ways better than I expected. It was, it really started out, uh, we thought we were in a bad spot, but uh, uh, we were able to pull quite a few people through. Yeah, I was going to say, because I mean, if you're talking, I mean, 13 ended up passing, unfortunately, but I mean, if you guys, if you guys aren't out there, you know, if, if there wasn't maybe a little bit of planning ahead on who was making those decisions, I mean, I'm, you're talking probably a lot, lot, a lot worse on that. Um, that's, it's something too, I think, you know, kind of goes unnoticed too, just where you guys are also helping not only, you know, our own, you know, Marines and military personnel out there, but also just random people that are, are, are caught, caught up in that. Cause is that something that's, you guys have like, um, uh, I would say not a code to, to go by, but your, your procedures 
too on um like a medical rules of engagement yeah yeah do, yeah to, to who gets treated first and and mm -hmm. and things like that we do we do have them in each theater of operations is um slightly different and it's usually <clears throat> up to people obviously who are outrank us who make those decisions <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but typically it's pretty rare that you will see um, a military treatment i think roll one, two, right, or three that really truly turn away a bunch of people. So what I think other people don't realize is we take care of our active duty, um, our veterans, our civilians, right, but also even local nationals, depending on the location that we are. And we're talking from the womb to the tomb, you know, uh, mm -hmm. of all ages, all backgrounds. Um, <clears throat> and again, I think that's what makes us, I think, unique in that entity. Yeah, now, to go back on the um, the authenticity that, you know, we were kind of talking about during the training, that is sometimes the only thing that's hard to, you know, make real, you know, because if somebody's going through a scenario, you want them to make it as real as possible so it feels live so then they're more prepared to get in when they're actually there. And I was reviewing a video from your, your website, which um, there was a, kind of like a scenario, I guess, a training scenario where somebody... Um, was in like a motorcycle accident or so, and then they're wheeled in. And like, as I'm watching it, I see this, this guy um, on the bed who's just like covered in blood and everyone's just like rushing to help him. And the camera's in there and I'm like caught up in it. I'm like, how did they get the cameras in here while, you know, yeah, this guy's like, bleeding crazy. out there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was like, poor, poor guy. He's just laying there. You know, he's <laughs> like, uh, you know, he doesn't know he's about to be on TV. Um, but then at the end of the scenario, they said that, you know, they didn't, it was an actor and that people didn't realize or the trainees didn't realize that it, you know, it could have been real. It could have been fake. And then even me, I was fooled on it too. And I could usually see right through that stuff. Usually it's just, you know, plain dummies or the, the blood, the fake blood is so poorly done, but that was as real as it got. And then it wasn't until the end where I felt like the trainee where I was like, Oh wow, that was just, uh, that was, that was fake, but it just, it felt so real. And I, and that was the first time I've seen something. Um, cause I've watched like police training videos too, and, and EMTs and, you know, that's the only thing that it, it usually doesn't have, but from watching that video, I mean, that seemed so real cause it was a real live person too, that they're working on. Right. And I think, you know, again, just kind of going back to how we train, we talked about like notional training with mannequins, right. And then you talk about when we are at Rider trauma center, where else do you replicate war wounds? You have to come to an inner city where we're going to yeah. get those type of wounds. Um, but you were correct. We trained them um, long hours. They're in a didactic phase for the first few days of the course. It's a two-week course. Um, and then they go into a clinical phase. And um, this is not a walk in the park. You know, this is something that, like, we really push that this is real, um, that any one of us can be there together, that it's important for us to assess their team dynamics because that's the other piece of it. It's not just the oh snap like this is real like that guy's bleeding we need to do something about it it's more how are they working together as a team to solve the problems uh, or to resuscitate right how do they problem solve how do they troubleshoot um and when they go through the course they get a mixed match of multiple things so um, that is to keep that stress level a little bit high uh, to keep them at that peak performance but yeah that's interesting that you were also like this guy like <laughs> yeah i was i was amazed i was like feeling bad for him because he doesn't know he's on tv he's just gotten yeah, through his motorcycle space. accident yeah. yeah yeah and then i you know after i was like thinking to myself oh that must have stunk being that actor where you have like people trying to resuscitate you and you don't need to be resuscitated because you're an actor the reality is though very quickly then those aren't actors anymore i mean they are really taking care of patients that come to the rider trauma yeah. center yeah yeah I, I do want to make one one point um you know the the army 
teams that come are composed of you know board certified physicians, licensed nurses. Uh, you know, these aren't, I guess, trainees in the in the sense of they're still undergoing their medical like uh, basic training wise. And yeah, 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 they, they that's are a good they point. are uh, uh, fully uh, licensed and certified uh, medical practitioners. Uh, it's just they don't necessarily practice trauma regularly, and they certainly aren't employees of Rider Trauma Center. So they are brought in in kind of a um, training, you know, I guess, mode uh, or status, uh, and they are integrated with the rider staff so that they can uh, take full advantage of taking care of those uh, severely injured trauma patients, uh, but still with some oversight from the, the home institution. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. And who, um, do they actually operate on, say, if there's a shooting in downtown Miami, they take them over there. Are they operating occasionally on, like, real-time folks as well? Correct. But with someone like myself, who's a full-time cadre oh, member yeah. here, or uh, some of my other colleagues that aren't military but are the full-time, you know, trauma surgeon staff at, uh, at University of Miami and Ryder, uh, they would be the ones ultimately in charge, but they can integrate the Army surgeons okay. and Army staff uh, just as if they would, you know, other trainees that they have in their uh, residency program. And okay. Yeah, I almost don't want to use the word trainee to describe, like, yeah, any of hard. them because, like, yeah. they're that, – that's, uh, you know, you, you know probably a different word for that because of their, you know, status and knowledge because they, they've all gone to med, med school. Co- and, correct. At least the okay. physicians because the, the forward surgical team, and maybe we didn't uh, – uh, even take a step back and explain what that is, like who our who our trainees are, like what actually. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I forgot to introduce myself. So yeah. <laughs> that's true. That's true. No, yeah, we can do true. it later. <laughs> we'll save it the for art, the, the, yeah. the art of editing. Yeah. We work backwards. Yeah. <laughs> so, but a uh, an army, I guess now that's called a forward resuscitative surgical team. The army likes its uh, acronyms and names, uh, but it has uh, surgeons uh, that are both either. Uh, trauma or general surgeon trained. They have orthopedic surgeons, so for fractures. Uh, they have emergency medicine physicians. Uh, they then have uh, nurses of various types. They have emergency room nurses. They have ICU nurses. Uh, they have uh, nurse anesthetists uh, as the as the anesthesia uh, component, and then they have um, medics and uh, LPN level trained nurses, uh, as well as typically a. Um, commander and an administrative, uh, a medical administrative person. Uh, and that kind of makes up this 20 person, uh, team that we call a forward resuscitative surgical team. Okay. And, and how many people make up a team? You said it's like 20. typically 20. Okay. And so basically you would consider that like a, a class. Yeah. So when a, when a, uh, course is in session at Ryder, it is usually typically one forward surgical team. So they typically bring all 20 of their members. Okay. Okay. And then, and then it's basically set that 20 then would then deploy to the same place on whatever the well, rotation sometimes they is. Sometimes split. So sometimes okay. you'll hear, oh, this team is splitting. And so in an ideal world, it would be nice to have all 20 of your personnel, oh, for sure. you know, in one location. Uh, but more frequently, you will see that they will actually split into two teams of 10 in two different locations, which now, right, broadens your level of care, your area of influence, right, yeah, yeah. Um, in that side. And then you even have teams which split off into what we call a ghost, um, which is your golden hour team, basically, okay. where they will be able to actually go forward a little bit more with that element and take care of them surgically and then come back to that 10-man team. Um, again, another piece that makes us unique is that we are very good at doing more with less um, yeah. and being able to save lives. And if you think about that's three different echelons of care, right, um, out there in the same element from the same team. 
um, and that's also something else that we um, evaluate their teams coming through is how do they function as a team? Because we have some teams that come through that are fantastic clinically, but it's the first time they've ever worked together. So how do you bring that confidence and competence, and right? Personalities and personalities and, and egos and attitudes, right? How do you bring that all together? You're just putting together um, like a, an office, basically, you know, to, to, a, to an extent, I guess. Right. Um, but I will say, based off of our reserve brothers and sisters, along with our active duty, like we work with some really amazing folks. Um, and even though we are serving the same military and the same purpose, it is awesome to be able to train not with them, but, you know, train, train with them and for them, you know, um, and be a part of that process. One thing that I really love about what I do um, at ATDC is that I came as a student in 2017 before I deployed. And I remember thinking, wow, like what a great program. And I can tell you firsthand that I was a better officer, a better nurse and a better leader um, after coming through this course for my deployment. Um, a lot yeah. of our young officers and our enlisted too that come through the course or before they come to the course think that they're the bee's knees, right? Uh, I was this big shot, you know, at my previous yeah. duty station. And then you get to the trauma center and you're like, oh, man, like this is real. Like, I, yeah, like, wow, like that leg's barely hanging on there. Like, yeah. I think I know what I'm supposed to do um, or I think I know how I'm supposed to lead my team uh, who's looking to me because I'm equally shocked, <laughs> you know, in the <laughs> moment of what I'm looking at. Um, and then you have those aha moments, right, where the Christmas lights come on and you're like, maybe I do like need this training. And then it all comes together. Um, but I can definitely say again that coming as a student now here as cadre, as an instructor, um, we've made so many changes to our course to stay relevant. Like I talked about earlier, um, it's truly rewarding to see the things that we do and the, the type of medical personnel that we help produce, um, to take care of our brothers and sisters downrange. Yeah. Especially you being there, um, you know, as a student at one point too, you're able yeah. to see it from like day one all the way to, to current, which could be just invaluable from like a leadership standpoint, they're looking down and saying, okay, how could we get this better? I mean, they could look to you and just be like, you know, she's been here since day one. Now, fast forward, you know, what are some things that we could be doing better and kind of implement to make things more efficient or whatnot? Yeah. Um, actually, uh, Dr. Bozzelli brought up, or Colonel Bozzelli brought up um, one of our colleagues, uh, Major Boomsma, who also um, was one of our cadre currently and then deployed to Afghanistan as well. And he would say that I was literally doing stuff and I could hear Dr. Bozzelli in the background, like telling me like, you need to do this or think about these things. And that he felt fully prepared, you know, um, for something that I think, right. Nobody really anticipated at what level, you know, you guys were going to experience in Afghanistan. But, um, that makes me as an instructor, as cadre feel good that we are doing the right things and we are putting the correct material out and yeah. assessing the correct things. A lot of work goes into it. Um, yeah. And talk about always, you know, always needing to be ready, you know, um, when you were, when you were over there, um, did you, cause if you're an instructor also kind of helping the, the trainees here, um, when you got over there, were you kind of familiar with the people on your team that you were already working with? Cause if, you know, I'm, I'm thinking you, you necessarily didn't have like that 20 man team, <laughs> here like the trainees are you know are, are training to do with um and then when you get over there you're with probably other cadre and so that have been teaching other classes too how did that kind of mesh and, and work itself out yeah so it, it is always uh one, one of the challenges we deal with in military medicine whereas maybe at a civilian place you kind of you know have an established team that kind of always sticks together um you know of course there's always 
some staff turnover, but it's a lot slower and over longer periods of time. Uh, but the military does expect you to be able to kind of plug and play and integrate into these teams, um, you know, efficiently and as quickly as possible. Now, uh, these particular folks that I deployed with, the 936 FST, they had come through our training. So I had I had met them at that time. I, I knew I was deploying, but I wasn't sure with whom. So I didn't know uh, that they were the ones. But uh, uh, it, it was, uh, I think, it's it's always fortunate to have had some, you know, personal interactions prior to just showing up. Uh, in Afghanistan with each other. And so we had had that uh, back in the, uh, I think, November of last year. Um, well, I guess I should say uh, it'd be November of 2020 uh, is when they came prior to their uh, departure for deployment. So, uh, but that is a challenge. And a lot of times the uh, physicians in particular are looked at as uh, uh, just being interchangeable pieces, but we learned that you know, with personalities and, and things that it really does help to get some team training uh, under their belt and you start working out those kinks. It's not always going to be perfect. There still might be, you know, friction points and tempers and personality conflicts. But as long as you've initiated working through them, your team's a lot better off. Yeah, I can only imagine, especially in like that type of environment, too, where it's everything is already stressful. And then all of a sudden you have, you know, maybe people thinking it should be done this way or, or that way. Something that I don't think really gets the attention that it deserves in terms of being um so important to you know succeeding in something like that because it just it's just like a team just like in basketball football where people just have to mesh you can have the best talent or not and you know if they mesh then you're you're probably in a better you know a, a better spirit with that that's uh and and, and 18 hours straight you know that's <laughs> you kind you kind of need that that's with the intensity there yeah for sure that's um it's amazing you're over there too. You, you just just ten days and then you're right back. No, no, no. Our, our one colleague was there for ten days. I, I was there for, uh, I think I departed in um, uh, June and got back uh, in early September. So yeah, I was gone about two and a half, three months. Okay, okay, yeah. And you were just must have been one of the last, uh, yeah, yeah, last people out there. It, it, it does highlight though some of the uh, the other things we 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 deal with um, is. When things are going well and we, we want them to go well when we're deployed, right? We don't want uh, folks to get hurt. Uh, and so you might find yourself in a situation where there really isn't much work to do. You're kind of deployed and asked to be there and you have this training and abilities and skills. And then they, uh, you know, they really uh, do atrophy. You kind of you know, sit on your hands, for lack of a better word, uh, on, on uh, some deployments. And that's kind of what we were doing at the beginning. There really wasn't... Um, any real intensity to the conflict uh, when I first arrived. And so the, uh, uh, the downside to that, though, is if that team isn't rehearsing regularly, isn't using their skills, uh, it does, uh, it can escape you and you're maybe not as, as sharp as you need to be. Uh, and so, again, kind of brings us back to what our, our training is always focused on is that uh, not only do we teach them for the two weeks they're here, but we try to give them some tools to say, you, you need to continue this. You can't allow yourself to be. Yeah. Uh, almost on like a self-starter, yeah. you know, when no one's watching too, yeah. to make sure you're still, yeah, you got, you got to rehearse and you got to, you know, keep your knowledge base up. You got to you know, do these things that maybe you don't do all the time because that one day comes along where you have a chance to save some lives and make some real impact. And if you're not ready. And you've got 60 people coming in that need, you know, need your help or they're going to die. I mean, geez. And so while, you know, you know, 60, 75% of my time over there, that deployment involved 
doing you know, almost no patient care. Uh, the, the part that did was you know, extremely intense, extremely you know, professionally rewarding, but also uh, um, you know, could be you know, many pitfalls if, if we hadn't been as prepared as we were. Yeah, you said you got there in June. Was there any sense that, you know, um, that things could eventually kind of escalate over there with, with tensions? Or, I mean, I, I guess it, it wasn't until probably the end of July, I want to say, where, you know, things started hitting the news and, you know, the different cities started kind of having, a, you know, different leaderships kind of take over. Or was it, did you go in when you first went over there? It was like, all right, this is my rotation for the next, like, you know, three to six months. And, you know, after that, then I'll just, I'll come back. Or w w did you go into there kind of having a sense of this could get intense? Uh, no, I'd probably say the, the, uh, the first that we were, you know, expecting to maybe be over there to be kind of a just in case, um, you know, supporting the troops that were there, but not really expecting any significant conflict. Um, but the um, yeah, yeah, situation uh, certainly did uh, deteriorate rapidly, I think a lot more rapidly than anyone expected. And um, yeah, it just seemed like every every uh, uh, update we would get or any you know time to watch the news, it was you know all over the public news uh, that um, yeah, the conditions in the uh, country were deteriorating a lot faster than, than we had ever anticipated. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you're just at a drop of a hat, almost like a firefighter, I guess, right? To a to a point where you're just sitting there, you get a call on the fire, and then you just gotta like jump into um jump into like an eight eighteen hour yeah, session too. Yeah, you could too. be at the shower, right? You're just running in your flip flops, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. to the to the hospital to go do what you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and I know you had said you know it was eighteen straight hours, but I you know. I always think sometimes where, all right, well, what about the people who were just getting off of work, you know, and then boom, that happens. Then you're 18 hours, you haven't slept yet. And then you're, you know, like, um, then you're 18 hours more. I've, I've thought about that with 9-11 too, where like the firefighters who were working that evening shift, they didn't even go to bed yet, you know, and then they're working around the clock for days too. And you know, something just specific to like think about just from a different perspective is is that to where I'm sure you guys have your like nightly and daily rotations so then people can sleep and then, you know, and some are staying up to where, you know, that that hits right before you haven't gone to bed yet. You know, you're realistically you're over a day of just straight focus, adrenaline, too, because um, that's. That's something that's just so interesting. I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on too. Is the uh, controlling the adrenaline in that scenario while still maintaining like your physical precision too, where you're you know in surgery and you know in that chaotic, intense environment, and you're needing to remain physically calm. I guess to have that control over your own body. So you're, you know, you can make cuts and, and so up and so forth. Um, do you guys do any training with that in terms of controlling your adrenaline? Cause that's just, uh, like a whole nother world of training, I guess. Well, I mean, we do put our, I should say there's difference between like our personal experience, right. Um, from his mascal, um, experiences on top of mine, but, um, to kind of go for the first part, you're hundred percent correct as far as that adrenaline, but a lot of the colleagues probably right in that sense. I don't know if you experienced this, but at least in my personal experience, you're 
you can't go to sleep. There is no rest. And if you are resting and not actively doing patient care, you're running to grab your colleague's food, you know, like trying to tap out. Um, nobody, somebody is always doing something in those type of situations. If they're working those long shifts like that, it's because poop has hit the fan and all hands are on deck. Um, and it's not until it's over and you take your deep breath and you're like, man, I'm exhausted. You can say but, shit, by the way, if you want. Oh, yeah, like poop. <laughs> you know, but it's just one of those like, man, like you, you know, you don't expect that. Um, hopefully you hydrated beforehand, but at least in my experience from when I was deployed, um, it was all hands on deck. Nobody's sleeping. And if they are sleeping, it's not a comfortable sleep. Um, so you, you feel better being there with your colleagues and seeing what's going on. As far as the training aspect, um, that is one thing we try to replicate, but you really can't. Um, we've had several rotations with students where we've had mini mascals at Rider Trauma Center, and we're working side by side, elbow to elbow, with our civilian counterparts, you know, to um, take care of these patients. Um, so that's a little bit of a factor for our students, or I should say, our rotators to see. Uh, but we also put them through a mass casualty type exercise. Um, before they get to the hospital and that's with some notional you know training um, but we definitely keep it very realistic um, because again we need to see who's going to not crack under pressure but see where some of maybe their fail points are see some of their highlights um, who is performing well like who can handle this and you'd be surprised you know some of the ones that you think aren't going to make it are the ones that step up and they are like wow okay this person's going to be okay and you have some that should we think should be performing um and they just need to tweak a couple of things, um, you know, in their practice, you know, to say, hey, these are the places, this is the time to make your mistakes, right? This is the time to figure out where your fail-safes are um, before you deploy. So we try to implement some of that training for our, our rotators. Um, but I don't know if you agree with this, but until you really are faced with it in real life, um, you can only do so much, right, um, to see really truly where you are mentally, emotionally, and physically. Yeah, that, yeah that's why I... I um brought up before why I like so much that scenario that you guys had with a, a live human and the trainees did not know whether it was fake or real. Um, because you hear about that all the time where, you know, a, a cop pulls out his gun too quick and, you know, it's a two second split decision and that maybe that cop, you know, didn't have experience yet, or maybe they, um, you know, jumped the gun or it was a good decision. Um, and you just never know, what you would do in that scenario until you're actually there. And um, I, I, I love the training that you guys do on that because it, it seems like it is as live as humanly possible to where, you know, you don't necessarily know if it's fake or real and you have to treat it 100% as if that person could die, you know, right in front of you because you don't know. Right, and it's interesting that you focus or highlight on that piece when there are so many of these other big ticket items that we do during our training. And hopefully one day you can actually come and see some of the other things to see what this four surgical teams um, actually are capable of doing in about a room this size, um, you know, yeah. a little bit bigger. <clears throat> and when we talk about, you know, being in an austere environment, we're talking dirt floors, you know, cloth tents, you know, yep. uh, plastic tents and the things that we can actually do out there. We replicate that uh, for them. Um, just being re resourceful, I guess. Correct. Yeah. And talk about like being a MacGyver, you know, like we've, <laughs> we've jerry-rigged and done a lot of different things um, to just, again, take care of these patients. So hopefully you can join us sometime to see that piece of it. Because again, that one piece of video clip that you saw is such a small portion of what we actually offer our teams. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, I absolutely would love that. Yeah. I would love Maybe to accept the invitation. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to sign a non-disclosure form, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you couldn't talk about it on the podcast, but we no, could definitely. No, 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 no. I think your mind would be blown to see yeah. what what our teams are capable of mentally, emotionally, and physically, but also with their skills, um, and the profession and like the the courage. I want to say that some of our individuals really display during this time. Yeah, that mentality of just being so super focused for so long. Um, you know, maybe even like being in the same posture for like, you know, that, that amount of time too. I mean, yeah, I think you that, were saying one of your colleagues was performing surgeries on the floor, right? Like they had just run out of just, operating tables yeah. to talk about, you know, the drive to want to save lives. And if I was, I'm a different kind of warrior, but you know, for me, <laughs> if I was a warfighter, like if that doesn't motivate you to be like, man, our men and women who serve in the medical community really care about us. Um, I don't know what else would motivate you, you know, uh, to want to go. Oh, for sure. For sure. That, that brings, uh, you know, a question up. What, what made you guys like want to get into the field, you know, to start rather than just going into like more of like a private setting and, and, and so forth. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the, the army treats you guys pretty well too, but in, in terms of a privacy or a private standpoint where, you know, you can maybe run your own private practice, um, things of that nature, why choose the army, um, over, you know, a ton of other opportunities that, y you know, you probably could have, uh, yeah, that's a done. great question. Uh, did you yeah, yeah. I can, um, I mean, just the, um, I think the, the professional reward of it, I mean, there's, uh, Personally, for myself, I had a desire to serve. I wasn't really sure, you know, how I would fit into the military. I had uh, you know, had some early thoughts of, you know, maybe um, serving in other ways. But, uh, you know, once it became clear that I was kind of on my way to becoming a, a doc and a, and a surgeon, um, I thought for sure that that was uh, a way I could give back in a meaningful way that uh, um, didn't necessarily... Uh, caused me to become a, a war fighter myself. And so um, the, yeah, I guess that professional uh, reward of, of taking care of someone who's really truly putting their lives on the line uh, for our country. But then when you're deployed with them, in a sense, they're putting their lives on the line for you as well. Like they are there uh, as part of your protection uh, while you're overseas. And so it just, uh, it bonds you in a way that, uh, that you really, you know, value taking care of them. And it's not to say that you don't um, get you know, professional reward from taking care of, you know, random citizens that get hurt here in the city of Miami because you do. Uh, but there's, um, there's just that little something extra about taking care of a soldier or a Marine uh, or an airman that gets uh, injured overseas. Um, you know, of course, with the desire that you're going to you know, make them better, get them back to their loved ones and their family. And uh, uh, that that's, really kind of a, uh, for me at least, that pinnacle of, of what I can do professionally. And so I'm proud to do it. And that's uh, why, why I got into this job and have stayed in this job. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, you've stayed, you're, how many, how many years? Um... So actually, uh, in, in terms of length of time on active duty, not very long. I've uh, passed the 10-year mark this uh, summer, which in the grand scheme of things is not a very long Army career. Uh, just because I had done all of my uh, uh, professional school and training on the civilian side. And so I didn't uh, enter the army until a little later in the pipeline. Yeah. But it's, you know, quality over uh, quantity there. You know what I'm saying? Oh, 100%. I mean, for sure. Yeah. yeah <laughs> we'll, I mean, keep we'll keep them. We'll keep them. Yeah. And what about you, Major? Yeah. Um, 
Well, I've been in for 13 years. Um, loved every minute of it. Um, but I would say I come from a military family. So a lot of uh, males on my dad's side have been combat arms, um, enlisted and, um, deployed multiple times. My dad, uh, for example, is an armor um, NCO and retired as a sergeant major. Um, and just growing up in a military family, seeing the sacrifice that happens. Um, I actually have some close friends and other family members that have gone through all of the echelons of care uh, during their deployments. And so for me, it was very important to serve. Um, like I said earlier, I'm a different kind of warrior. I am not the one to be running up a hill, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. throwing rocks and, you know, doing, you know, doing all that stuff. Even though I am trained in a lot of soldiering skills, um, I feel that my skills are a lot better suited, you know, uh, providing that medical care. And so for me, it's more of a personal thing um, because I've had so many, you know, loved ones that have served um, and continue to serve despite their injuries. Um, so I wanted to be part of that of, hey, I'm okay being behind the fire, you know, of, yeah, of the yeah. lines, you know, to be able to take care of them so that they can go and fight. And you're the, you're the first person people start yelling for too in, in those, uh, either the medic. Yeah. Or the nurse, but usually <laughs> it's doc. I think even doc has been used across multiple services for medics as yeah. well. But, um, <clears throat> usually, yeah, we're, I think we're a good team medically wise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, uh, what kind of plans do you guys have in the in the future anything like in the immediate or you guys see yourself kind of still um you know with the, with the trauma training center still uh you know training some troops uh, as they as they come in and out well that's a good question um one of the things too um uh, we do a lot of our like process improvement right like within the programs again to remain relevant um when we talk about our simulation cases that we do um with our rotators we take a lot of actually some of the experience that Dr. Bazzelli and Dr. Boomsman actually went through in Afghanistan to make sure that our patient simulation library is very relevant. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> we also wanted to, you know, do a little bit more social media um, because I think a lot of people don't realize or know that like what we do uh, is actually a really big deal. And we've kind of been like a best kept secret here in Miami. And when people find out um, like kind of your reaction when I first I know, met you, yeah, you were yeah. like, I'm sorry, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm an army nurse. Like, yeah. This is what I do. I'm like, um, I'm, I'm like, holy shit. You train people who like go right into like combat scenarios almost, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and lifesavers right after they leave you and you teach them. You're not one of, you're not only just one of them, like you also teach them. Yeah. And a hundred percent. Right. Um, I think again, what we do is it's, you'll hear about other medical trainings, right? Not only within the military, but also on the civilian side that, um, they take, their rotators or their students and they kind of drop them off in a clinical setting and then they come and check on them and we yeah. uh, work elbow to elbow with them. And just kind of like Dr. Bazzelli talked about earlier is he's able to be picked out of being a cadre an instructor and able to be put into a team and function clinically um, just like the rest of our cadre are. And they're uh, subject matter experts or we call SMEs, you know, in the military um, mm. in their job. Um, that any one of us could be picked up and put on a team and we are subject matter experts um, with our clinical practice guidelines. And so, again, I think a lot of people don't know or understand what it is that we do, but we're always looking to be better, always staying relevant, sharing our data and our research you know, with the civilian side. Um, because we want to be able to influence that across the world. Because how cool would that be, you know, yeah, to go yeah. to another country to be like, we wrote that policy. Like I was a part of that, you know, like it's pretty neat. I like it too. You guys are kind of like a, like a hidden gem, yeah. you know? Um, Everybody wants us at a party, right? Cause they know <laughs> 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 it's okay. Everyone's safe. Like they're the army team is here. Yeah. 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 I could, um, 
I can imagine too how um, delighted you know the troops are overseas when you guys come in and they know that they actually have surgeons on base with them. I mean, they're not just kind of by themselves with with someone who might have six months of army medical training, but you have like up to 20 people who have gone to medical school for this. And in case something happens, that might give them some more confidence too, while they're, while they're out there to know that, you know, if something does happen that they do their, somebody does have their back physically because it's, it was probably a little tough if you're just out there with, with a medic who might just be able to resuscitate you, maybe stuff some gauze in your, your, your gunshot wound or, or revive you for a second. But, uh, you know, to know that if something happens, you're, in good care when you get back, um, probably it's got to go a long way. Yeah. Now that, that, I think that is cited fairly frequently that, that that's how, uh, you know, those that are actually act, uh, asked to do the real combat fighting, uh, the more supported they feel. And certainly medical is a big part of that, that they know their job is inherently dangerous, that they are, you know, by the nature of their job, accepting some inherent risks of bodily harm and maybe even death, but knowing that there's, you know, some folks that are well-trained and hardworking that are uh, right there behind them and ready to go if they need them is, I think, a major motivator. Yeah, because I feel like they're, they're um, the Army and the military as a whole is are starting to implement more training into just, you know, the, the soldiers coming out of basic training for a couple months. And, and they're trying to, you know, here's here's your job and your skill set and what you need to be trained in. But actually here's some medical on top of that too, because they're really trying to get that instilled into everybody because it is just so valuable. Yeah. And just from like a mentality, you know, have knowing that you guys are behind them as they're, they're going and just oh, yeah. got to give some more confidence. And I think another like more funny, I think part of it is, um, I don't know again, if you've experienced this, but in my last deployment, um, we were with an SF group, right. That was there. And it was so funny. Cause some of us would be like, Oh man, like we ran out of sunscreen. <laughs> and the next day there would be like a case of sunscreen from our special forces like, <laughs> operators. And I was like, this is like Santa, you know, like, this is so great. Um, they get the best care packages too. And next thing you know, like they're sharing their snacks with us and those can be those small little morale boosters. So I a hundred percent agree that usually your supply, your food, right. And your uh, medical usually get treated the best when you are out there supporting the troops. So I can't complain. We've they're been, smart then. Yeah. They're treated pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I don't know if you. I don't no, know no, I, I, I agree though that uh, I think the the higher yeah. yeah the higher risk the job. So like when when you do start working with some of the SF communities that uh, yeah they, they they maybe more so than the average soldier recognize the value of of having a medical team there to back them up. Yeah, because I, I I can assume especially on on that level too where they've probably been almost in life threatening scenarios too where they come back with a gunshot wound, they know it's their life is just solely in, in your hands. I mean, they, they probably really, really know the value in you guys rather than maybe somebody who just came out of basic training, hasn't deployed yet, and is just used to having medical staff around them at all times rather than being in that live scenario where, you know, I mean, at, at the end of the day, if something happens, you guys are it. And the SF community, too, have, I mean, excellent trained medics, and they're called 18 Deltas. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are their special forces medics who, I mean, 
do some incredible things, um, and their scope of practice is just insane. And they're um, training too, where it's in combat scenarios. Correct. Right? And so it's always nice that we do joint training. You know, we share uh, toys, right? Like, oh, you've got ultrasound on your phone. Like, how cool is that? You know, and <laughs> sharing funny. some tips and tricks, um, sharing of supply. And so, again, when we talk about that brother sisterhood, like that is a legit real thing, especially as our brothers and sisters are getting hurt. Like, you all of a sudden become one um, for one main effort. And I don't think there's anything like that. Um, even on the civilian side, like, yes, we come together at times, but the camaraderie within, I think, the military and especially the medical community is um, very special. Yeah, because, I mean, if they spend maybe three, six months with you guys, too, I mean, you guys have legit medical degrees, you know? I mean, they could walk away with uh, a whole nother field, um, you know, learning it in those scenarios, too. Yeah, and sometimes it's longer than that. When the war first kicked off, we had, like, 18-month, deployments and you're talking like that's like enough time to bond as a family you know oh, yeah. and when they leave and somebody gets replaced you're like who's this new guy like you got big shoes to fill yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't know, be nice to have everybody on the same like rotation there but yeah um no that's uh that, that, where were you uh, deployed um i was in iraq okay yeah. okay yeah yeah, it's it's i feel like it's still still ongoing too it's not just you know everyone sees the afghanistan pull out and everyone's like, okay, now we're now we're out, we're done. You know, no more combat, no more troops at risk. And it's like, eh, no, we're no, all over the world. No, yeah. yeah. And even even I feel like still over there now, it's still gonna, you know, we're still gonna have some. Um, I mean, even just uh, like two days ago, I think that there was some threats because of the it was the anniversary of Soleimani's death. Soleimani's, you know, a, a year or two ago too. So I mean, there's it's just like it, it always always a threat. And then you've got now, you know, with Afghanistan, um, kind of back in different hands to where, you know, I feel like there's some on edge on that. But you know, you can only time will tell, I guess, right? Yeah. And until I think there is truly world peace, you yeah. know, I yeah. think the army and all of our military, I think entities, especially the medical folks, will continue to train because our our sole goal, right, is to take care of our brothers and sisters downrange, wherever that may be, um, land, air, or sea, right? Yep. <laughs> so yeah. um, our, our program will, I think, forever be relevant and needed. Um, we have several other courses, right, that are very similar um, that are starting to build up, which I think is fantastic. Um, you know, the, the ATTC, you know, cadre, love what we do, but you can only train 11 teams a year. And mm. I think something that we need to have is more training and more sites and more partnerships can actually um, blossom to the type of relationship we have with Rider Trauma Center here in Miami. We, I mean, could you imagine like every other year going to a different course um, and being yeah. able to get in? You know, we only have so many seats and to talk, not to like toot our own horn to be like, look how awesome we are, but like we are truly booked. Until, no, but look how awesome we are. Yeah, like we are booked Standing out from, yeah, 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 till 2023. And, you know, we just started the year, you know, if you think about it. And so, and then we have teams always wanting to come here. And so, again, as cadre and as a, you know, past student of the program, you want to make room for everybody, but there is just only so much we can do for so many teams. Um, but we do the best that we can. So I'm hoping, again, that the military yeah. continues to push those programs because we truly need that continuity from, I think, the civilian side. Do you think, um, you know, another incentive for people to, you know, 
come through the um, the school is it's in Miami, you know. And if you're in the army, it's like, oh, I'm stationed <laughs> in you know Texas, dirty <laughs> Texas, or like you know Sandy, Arizona, or um, cold Alaska, and then they, oh, well, Miami. There could, well, <laughs> there could be worse places to be a yeah. Southern, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, a lot of uh, you know military senior leadership, you know, when you're like, I want to go to this course, and they're like, where is it? It's in Miami, like Miami. Mm. Uh, but again, yeah, but again, where do you replicate war wounds? You've got to go to this inner city, and unfortunately, Miami is keeping us in business mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, as much as, you know, I think some, you know, locals probably don't want to hear that, but it is very true. Um, just like there are multiple other inner cities too, that also provide, I think some of the civilian partnerships that they're starting now uh, to offer that same training, uh, yeah. training value. Yeah. Cause that was, um, that was one thing that, um, you know, surprised me when we first um, we're talking about the Army Trauma Training Center being in Miami. I was like, there's one in Miami. I was like, are they crazy? They're going to have like, okay, Army- yeah, it's just down the block. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you hear yeah. the ambulances every night? <laughs> yeah. I was like, people are coming right down here right before they deploy to Miami. You know, I was like, oh, but uh, that, that's well, he good. Knows I- gunshots, right? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know why they chose Miami as the, the venue or? The, the specific details? No. I mean, that's, uh, you know, something from 20 yeah, years yeah. ago, but. Uh, you know, in general terms, I, I, I think I have a very clear understanding of it, it's the, the type of trauma that you see here. So um, across the U.S., there are, I would say, many very busy level one, level one being the highest level trauma centers. Um, but there's only certain cities that have really still very high rates of penetrating injuries, that being gunshot wounds and stab wounds, which are going to be more similar to what we see in the military. And so Miami, uh, for better or worse, is one of those cities that still has uh, quite a high rate of penetrating trauma injuries. Uh, so the desire to be here, the need to be here, really matches what the what the army is looking for. What is the in in your um, you know perspective? And I'm sure there's stats on this too. What is would you say the the worst? You know, obviously, um, you know, this is broad terms, but like say the worst wound to get is it like getting hit in the extremities? Is it you know an IED? Is it a gunshot wound? Um, what would you say is the like the biggest fatality wound that you see most often? So in, in the military, it'd be described as a complex blast injury. Uh, and so that's similar to what we were seeing in Afghanistan uh, at the end of August. So where there's uh, an explosion and there's, um, you know, fragments and, and basically the, the possibility of getting injured all over in many regions of the body, right? You can have head and neck, you can have chest, you can have abdomen, you can have extremity injuries. And so it's just, there, there's so many things going wrong all at once uh, that becomes very difficult. You gotta be sewn up like a hundred different yeah, ways. Yeah. And so sometimes an isolated gunshot wound, although it can be devastating, can also be, you know, very treatable as well. Um, that's one thing that uh, this current war, I think, has, um, reinvigorated is the use of tourniquets. Uh, so for an extremity injury that you can place a tourniquet on and stop the bleeding, um, that, that patient is very likely going to do well because that tourniquet can stay up for even up to several hours until that person gets to an appropriate medical care to, to treat that wound. Uh, but um, where we kind of still earn our keep as surgeons or it's those areas where you can't uh, compress it with a tourniquet. So anything kind of in the neck, chest, abdomen, pelvis is all kind of our territory to stop the bleeding because there's no no tourniquet for those areas in the body. Yeah, I guess there's no there's no, no guide, tourniquet. right? Yeah, nope. yeah, yeah. There's no neck <laughs> no. tourniquet. There's yeah. no um, yeah. There's they probably just leave it up to you to make your own um, you know, decision on on what to do. Kind of, I guess. Well, I mean, I mean, there there are um, you know, well thought out ways of of treating those patients, and so 
another big advance that's occurred uh, throughout the last 20 years uh, is getting back to the use of blood uh, as what we resuscitate patients with and not just crystalloid or fluid uh, uh, and now really even whole blood. Um, if you're familiar with anything in, in medicine, blood uh, typically these days is divided into its different components. You just get the red cells or you just get the platelets or you just get the plasma. Uh, but we've gone back to using whole blood because obviously if you're bleeding, you're losing all of those components of blood. Uh, and so in the initial phase of trauma, uh, it's become uh, much more advantageous to, to replace that with whole blood. Uh, and so that that has kind of won its way back into favor from this experience. And it's something that has crossed over from the military experience into the civilian world. Okay. And just to like put it in perspective, yeah. um, when you have a patient that needs quick, you know, resuscitation or massive resuscitation, right? Um, in the past with the component therapy, you could be giving anywhere from 40 to 50 products, right? And so you're thinking those are individual bags mm -hmm. that take time, right? You've got to check it, you've got to spike it, you've got to prime the tubing, you've got it right, and you're talking about multiple bags. And that's really a dedicated job versus using whole blood, we went from 40 to 50 components to maybe 10 maybe 15 bags of whole blood, right? So when you talk about efficiency, um, but also the outcome of the patient, you know, um, that makes a huge difference. Um, and also in the work productivity, like as you go through. Um, and I remember the first time I had used whole blood as a nurse, I was like, this thing's a miracle drug. Like, you know, when really <laughs> it's just, like he said, you're losing the whole component, right? All of the yeah. components of the blood out. Uh, why not replace it with the same thing? So, um, so. It, it is definitely very, very cool to see in real life. Wish we could take you on a clinical rotation. Pass out. I think you would be shocked. Um, like, oh, you guys do this every day. Um, oh man, I would not forget. I would love that. I would, I would be like, um, like a pig and shit, just seeing you guys in action. You know. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, this is so super cool. Is this real or is this not real? How do yeah. I? <laughs> yeah. You're like, we got you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cause that's just, that's, it's just amazing, amazing stuff. You're like basically like in an ER, but like you're, you're a operating dedicated on... trauma center. Yeah. 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 I, I did want to add though, you, you had asked about like how we ended up at Miami. I, I really do think it, it, it important for me to say, you know, publicly on this podcast that the, um, I guess the vision and the, and the willingness of our, our partners. Uh, and so it's actually several different entities. It's, you know, um, you know, the, the wonderful medical center that's here is really made up of several different things. And so uh, the military is actually partnered with kind of all of them. And so it's the uh, University of Miami School of Medicine. Uh, and within that, um, there's a special entity called the Michael Gordon Center uh, that is a dedicated um, center for simulation and medical training. And so we utilize it, uh, but it's also utilized by the uh, medical school uh, and particularly a lot of uh, Miami-Dade fire and EMS uh, uh, folks as well, uh, that this um, way of you know, simulating patient care uh, is a great way to kind of, if you, if you talk of uh, training in kind of a crawl, a walk and a run phase, yeah. uh, to get you on either that crawl or that walk before we're over at the Rider Trauma Center, uh, you know, running a marathon. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, but that's the first entity. And, and they, again, like all of these folks are just tremendous partners, their, their willingness, you know, because these relationships can break down. I mean, there is uh, a history of 
you know, other things similar to this that just haven't worked out for various reasons. And so uh, the leadership uh, within our, our civilian organizations is really strong and committed to the Army. Uh, the others are, uh, of course, the Jackson Health System, because uh, they are uh, the ones that own uh, the Rider Trauma Center. Uh, and the last is the Miami-Dade Public Health Trust, uh, which is um, you know, this really wonderful thing that Miami-Dade has that uh, you know, years ago the citizens agreed to, to have this trust fund established to uh, uh, pay for care for those who couldn't afford medical care themselves. Uh, and so the, um, all three of those entities are, are signing uh, you know, these, these uh, agreements to partner with the Army over the years. Uh, and so uh, it really has taken all three of those elements um, you know, again, as is, is, is cool as it is to talk about the Army, it, it, these you folks are, yeah, they, they are really the ones. Yeah, because they're providing the space and the... And they're like dedication and yeah. patriotism. Yeah. And like when you see their support, and we have several of the staff, right, um, on the doctors and nurses side, um, and down to your social workers, we've got individuals who were prior service who had served, um, who have family members who, who are currently serving. And so to, for them to give back in this way and also to be so dedicated to us. And when we say like, these are our family, they are, we do our holiday parties together. Uh, we get invited to, you know, kids' birthdays and things along the lines of that to just show that like they've truly embraced us as family and, and in that medical community. Um, and then they get to know the rotators. And we have some rotators that come through multiple times, like five or six times and our civilian, you know, counterparts are like, hey, like, how was it? How are the kids? And like, it's just, it's really cool to see that they are, they think they're doing a small part, but really it is a huge part um, in the grand scheme of what our program does. Um, and at least for me, um, I'm thoroughly grateful, you know, for that opportunity and to be able to train side by side with them. Yeah, that's, that's good to hear, especially knowing, you know, I mean, you're, we're over 20 years in on that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that, that lasted longer than the, you know, Afghanistan war and the war on terror almost, you know, which, yeah. which is hard to do. You're talking yeah. 20 yeah. years yeah. on that. I'm sure you guys know that better than I do. You yeah. know, how long that, that is. Um, what are, um, do you guys have any goals for the, the trauma center in the next, like, you know, couple of years down the, down the line? Is it to expand it all or just kind of maybe get this, you know, type of, um, training center in different locations or so? Yeah. So the, um, you know, Army's uh, overall plan is to develop more of these military-civilian partnerships at other big level one trauma centers. And so, like, well, we'll, we'll always think that Miami is the best. We're the OG. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of like to say it is, you know, you, you can always, you know, they're almost like sports comparisons, you know, who's, who's the best at whatever, you know, sport. But they, these, these level one trauma centers, especially the bigger inner city ones, um, you can always compete to say who's the busiest, who's the baddest, who does the most, who does, you know, you the have hardest. The best swag, though, I will <laughs> say, you have the best swag. Well, the colors, the Miami yeah, colors. Yeah, there you, you know? go. <laughs> but I, I look at it as, as, as there's almost like this Ivy League of places that are still really very busy, um, and so they're all excellent. There are several excellent places throughout the U.S. Uh, uh, that are providing some very, you know, high level, high intensity trauma care. Uh, and so the Army is trying to partner with uh, some of these other locations that fit that that bill and fit that need. Um, and so that should expand our ability to train because I guess you know, you'd ask about like future desires or goals. It's, it's really not to lose the lessons learned uh, that we've kind of so hard, hard won over the last 20 years. Uh, uh, you don't want that experience to dwindle. And it, and it will you know, if, you, if you don't um, create a system that, that keeps teaching 
you know, those that are coming new into the military, you know, how to deal with these situations and how best to practice. And so we do um, have a number of entities set up within the military. So it's not unique to the Army. It's, it's joint across the entire Department of Defense. There's a joint trauma system, uh, which is now... Uh, you know, been in existence for quite a few years, but is, is now formally tasked with that goal of uh, preserving all of our lessons learned and continuing to teach uh, in a way that uh, keeps us prepared so that if we do find ourselves in a time of peace that uh, we don't completely let these lessons go. Um, they codify a lot of things, what we call our clinical practice guidelines. So there's you know, no real way to do medicine out of a cookbook, but there are there are definitely guidelines that can help you, that, that can help you. And uh, especially when it's stuff that you don't see a lot or practice regularly, these uh, clinical practice guidelines can really uh, give you a great foundation as to how to take care of a patient with a particular problem that that CPG addresses. Yeah, which is nice actually to have the CPGs because you talk about gunshot wounds, you know, blast injuries, burns, and then you get somebody with a snake bite and you're like, oh, Hmm. Like, let me, uh, yeah, what do we use for this again? Yeah. And so you have some of these other, you know, things that people don't think about, right? Like it's still considered trauma, right? Any type of yeah. injury to the skin, you break the skin, it's trauma, you know? Um, so to think about like a snake bite, you know, that does not make your top 10 sexy, you know, trauma injuries. Uh, but that is something that based on the areas that we are deployed to a big thing. Um, that people should be like, hey, you don't need to memorize all of these CPGs, but at least you know where to get them, how to get them, how to utilize them. Um, but everything is to right discretion based off of the medical professional that is yeah. there making those decisions. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if I'm in, um, you know, Afghanistan or especially, um, you know, some some more remote parts of Africa, I'd almost rather get shot than get bit by some of those freaking snakes. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Black <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. Oh, I agree. But there's a CPG for that. So. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, and thanks for coming on, guys. Before we finish, I just, you know, I uh, when you were discussing Afghanistan before, this 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 popped up into into my mind when we started talking about trauma too, because a lot of times, you know, there's obviously trauma with combat vets and you know people who are in explosions and and um, you know you know having friends die in in combat, unfortunately. But you know, from your standpoint, to just you know, you're, you're just kind of doing your, your day-to-day -day tasks over there. And then all of a sudden you get overwhelmed with such, um, you know, uh, horrible scenes of just people coming in and coming in. It's just, you don't know how many are going to keep filtering in that need your life-saving skills. Do you guys ever, you know, experience some sort of that trauma too, as well to where it's all over, everything's said and done with, and then maybe you think, oh, if I would have just done this, that, or the other, or if maybe I had this set up earlier in time do you guys ever feel like that as well because i feel like a lot of times that ptsd um attention is always more so on the you know the the people in those exact combat scenarios but maybe not as much you know uh coming from the the table i guess yeah i mean dr roselli actually or Colonel roselli actually talks about some of this with one of your favorite book recommendations, you know, as far as taking care of patients. Um, but I, I'll let him speak to this piece since his has been a little bit more yeah. um, recent. Uh, but I, yeah, you're you're 100 correct that it's cool to talk about. But at the end of the day, you know, there's only so much I think the human being itself can actually take. Um, so do we have some medical personnel that probably uh, I don't want to say suffer, but experience some of those feelings? Absolutely. Yeah, because I feel like it's almost like you gotta. Um put that, um, 
you know, that almost like that immediate trauma, almost like to the the back of your head for at least until you, you know, you, you kind of get through it. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, the simple answer is yes. It's, it's a, it's a little, I guess, different type of injury to you. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're to you personally. Um, the, uh, I guess the easiest way to, to describe it is you, you don't, um, you don't ever forget the, the ones you lost. Those, those maybe, maybe haunt isn't the right word, but they're always there as a, as a reminder to do better, uh, to push you to keep, to keep going. I guess, you know, you, you talked earlier about like how, how you can, you know, push yourself through like 18 hours of surgery and as hard as it is, you just realize what the, um, you know, the, the outcome, you know, could be if you, if you don't continue to push yourself, you don't want that, um, you know, the loss of that person's life to, 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 you know, come back to, you know, you know, make you think that you didn't, you didn't do enough. Uh, you don't want that burden. Uh, so they, they, the ones that get away from you and, and do pass away from their injuries are, are very difficult. Uh, but they are, um, yeah, they said they're, they're kind of that motivating factor to, to keep going. Uh, the ones that maybe survive and who, almost maybe shouldn't have that that's like hitting the lottery. So, so it's this very, uh, extremes of emotional highs and lows of, uh, you know, you get to tell that story of, of someone that, you know, shouldn't like we said, you know, you know, lo- lost their, lost their, uh, heartbeat. So effectively we're dead. You, you crack their chest, you know, sitting on the floor on your knees, you get them to the operating room, you get them back. And, you know, a few weeks later you hear about them, you know, reuniting with their wife and their child and, uh, you know, that, that's, you know, like a, a feeling you just can't describe. That's like a, a lotto jackpot type of feeling. And so, um, yeah, I guess it's really those, those extremes, uh, that, uh, that we have to deal with, uh, on the medical side. Uh, I certainly don't ever would, you know, would never compare myself or my experience to what, you know, actual folks, uh, have dealt with in terms of being in true combat roles where they are, you know, asked to or, or forced to, you know, pull the trigger and actually take another life. Uh, we certainly don't, don't live that life. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a little bit different for us. Uh, the, the book that, uh, that Sonia was referring to, uh, that I make mention of is called, uh, rule number two. And it's a, um, quote from the original mash movie. Uh, it's rule number one is soldiers die in war. And rule number two is surgeons can't prevent rule number one. Uh, and it was a, it's a great book. It's a short read. It was written by a Navy psychologist uh, who was in Iraq at the height of, uh, uh, I think, 2004. So very, very intense combat operations. Uh, I believe she was outside of Fallujah. So a lot of uh, injured mm-hmm. Marines coming in every yeah. day. And just the, uh, the book describes that psychological toll that, that uh, the medical side of, of the military does deal with in taking care of these injuries. You, you just constantly see the carnage, the worst of, 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 the, uh, of the conflict because everyone that's you know, injured or killed typically comes through some medical facility. Um, and they, uh, uh, they're kind of our, I guess, our cross or our burden to bear. Uh, but it's something I think most of us do do proudly and realizing that it's a um, trade-off of serving in the military without necessarily being in a combat arms unit that uh, might even more, you know, seriously put your own life at risk. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, to kind of end on such a, a humble note, too. I, <laughs> I mean, know, it's just, like, oh, maybe it, we should have talked about this earlier. No, <laughs> no, no, no. It just, I, I feel like it, um, you know, it just, 
heightens like the importance of like what you guys do and really what like the trauma training center does because like I always look at it from a standpoint, you know, if you guys aren't doing what you're doing, the domino effect that that has, because then, you know, if, if you're not passing down that knowledge, then when people get over there, you know, it's just tourniquets and, and, and simple, um, you know, um, wild west medicine. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I was going to bring up some, something, um, something from the civil war where it's just, you know, it's very simple because you don't, you don't have that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you guys, you know, having the, the skill set that you do and then choosing rather not to go into the private sector, but to be, you know, in the army and to, to keep having at it. And then also just to deploy when, you know, you're, you're asked to in those scenarios is, um, you know, it, it it's, I'm just I'm like not even intelligent enough to describe it, I guess to say, <laughs> you know, um, because it, you know, the, the whole military and army and, you know, from combat arms and you know, medical personnel with you guys too is um, all just so important and why it all works as just like a, a team because I feel like you guys over there too in, in Afghanistan or in Iraq, there's no doctors over there except for you guys in that whole entire country with the knowledge that you guys do. I'm sure because Iraq and Afghanistan, I'm sure they have their own little, you know, medical hospitals and so, but you guys are on a whole nother level. And we do actually a lot of training with local nationals too, especially when I was there in Iraq at the time. Um, and I didn't know this, and this isn't to say every doctor that is from Iraq or was there um, is not trained. However, the one that was actually uh, present yeah. um, was a biology major and just kind of got tagged with the job. And he was like, I watch YouTube videos on how to do things. And, and um, being a nurse as a profession there is not recognized uh, the way that yeah. it is here in the U.S. And, you know, we can suture, we can clean wounds, we can pack wounds, we can give medications, we can help, you know, suggest orders or write orders, you know, if the doctor is available um, versus in some of these other countries yeah. that do not value, I think, right, um, what the military, but also what U.S. medicine really can and is capable of, of being a force multiplier, right? Um, why would the doctor need to do these 10 things when the three of us are capable? He can go do something that we, that is outside of our scope, right? Um, yeah, yeah, rather than put like a tourniquet mm-hmm. on or, or something like that. Right. Um, but we do a lot of that training, you know, with them as well. So you're, you're correct in the, in the sense of thank you for the compliment of like, you've got this <laughs> top tier, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I am biased though. So yeah. <laughs> that we have this top tier, you know, uh, medical training and knowledge. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that is the, that is, I guess, one of the ultimate kind of big picture goals is to deploy a, you know, well-oiled trauma system, right? Like we don't want just a couple of random, you know, trauma docs and trauma nurses out there. It really needs to be a system of care you know, that gets someone from the point of injury uh, through maybe that first surgical team, that first forward surgical team that sees them through then the higher levels of care that as we evacuate patients out, uh, really do help them to survive uh, with you know, increasing that capacity and capability at each level that they, that they go through. Uh, but that really is kind of the ultimate goal of this deployed trauma system that's similar or as close to the, what we can have in the U.S. as, as possible. And you're, you're absolutely right. Some of the countries that we are deployed to have essentially zero medical infrastructure uh, you know, prior to our arrival. Uh, and that does make it more difficult because there's no reliance or, or yeah. capability of leaning on that. that yeah, home, that's that a good country. word you use too, like infrastructure, because it really, mm-hmm. it really is. It's not just you know people doing what they, you know, are trained to do. I mean, it is a full-on 
system well, something like that. that we have too in the u.s right is oh great like we've done this trauma care and now there's rehab and there's all of these other services right like the follow-up care um, and sometimes we kind of get stuck in that position where with some of the local nationals too where you are happy to take care of them but then you're like oh shoot like well, now what? Like, what, yeah. what's their follow-up? Yeah, yeah. Are we, do we need to, you know what I mean? Like, how is this going to work out? Or should we have not done this knowing, right, that there was no follow-up care? Um, which is, again, like kind of a transition, right, of thinking um, of, again, what we're used to in the United States. And then you go to an austere environment yeah, yeah, and provide the care, um, which is something actually some of my um, – my buddies now who are taking care of some of the Afghani refugees in the United States at these military posts were like, we have people coming up to us saying, I was getting cancer treatment, like chemo back in the city. Are you guys going to now do it for me here at a military facility? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. good question. Let me find out, you know? And so yeah. there's definitely some challenges that come with that. Yeah. I would so love to, um, even to pick your brain on that element too, on just, you know, the refugees coming into the United States and, and, you know, the types of care that they get and, and, um, and everything behind that too. Um, I feel like I'd, I'd probably, uh, keep you guys hostage for a whole day with that, with that conversation. <laughs> no, we both got contacts yeah. of people. I mean, that there's such an array of stuff. I mean, shoot, you could do a whole segment on JTF conference, you know, um, on itself, you know, just what that is and what we do. Um, but yeah, if you ever need any, you know, other military, you know, topics or medical topics, you know, please come reach out because we definitely have a huge community of folks out there that have these really important jobs and missions. Um, it's not just us, right? It's in a bigger picture, well-oiled machine, I would like to say. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah I like that word too. I um, And I will definitely um, probably take you up on that uh, invitation to see, uh, see what you guys do live yeah. because that's like doing a ride along with a police officer, you know, you think, you oh, know, you think, you know, be, and then yeah. it's all, and then, and then it's like, Whoa, wait a second. This is real. This is real. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm definitely excited and definitely excited too to, you know, touch base down the road too, and just kind of see where you guys are at, see how the, you know, the program for it's probably like grown and everything too. And, and, um, you know, best of luck to you guys too, especially if you guys end up getting, you know, deployed again and, and whatnot. Um, I can speak on probably behalf on everybody listening that everybody loves everything that you guys do and is so <laughs> appreciative. Um, Thank you. you know, it, 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 it just can't be said any, uh, any less than that. Cause it's, um, you know, it's indescribable. I mean, you guys have the knowledge you're saving lives and you know, that's, uh, that's what I love to kind of promote on this podcast too. So, um, major Vargo and, um, uh, Colonel Priscelli, thank you so much uh, for your time today. Yeah, thank you for uh, Daniel, having us. our pleasure. This was yeah. awesome. This was yeah. really cool. A lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, uh, enjoy the, the Miami weather. I feel like everyone, all of our friends in the Northeast right now are like, ah, <laughs> they're packed in on a snow day or something right mm -hmm. now. But uh, it's like 65 and sunny down here. So Yeah, nothing like drinking a PSL in 85 degrees. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, well, thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Bye. With every star